The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. So uh, let me set the scene here. It's 2001. Two sports entertainment giants, icons, if you will, Vince McMahon and Dick Ebersol, decide to take on the NFL. The two guys who between them created and produced Saturday Night Live, Monday Night Raw, WrestleMania, Friday Night Videos, later with Bob Costas. Saturday Night's main event, they had a huge list, a huge resume of successful programs and businesses. So from that list alone, they're both extremely successful and experienced when it came to producing sports entertainment and entertainment content in general. So, like I said, in 2001, they teamed up to start the XFL. It was a bold experiment launched with great hype and fanfare i'm not into stats i'm not a numbers guy football is about emotion you can measure a player's size time how fast he runs the four but you can't measure his passion his desire how bad he wants to play there's only one stat that matters in the xfl how much of your heart did you leave on that field the xfl coming this february it's real football which quickly failed in spectacular fashion. Talk about a Led Zeppelin. You know, we're going to make a few mistakes along the way, and when we do, big deal. So we get knocked on our keister. We just get right back up, dust ourselves off, you know, and we'll say, okay, we won't make that mistake again. It's an incredible story, and it's being told both as an upcoming ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called This Was the XFL, and right here, right now, on Talk is Jericho. Dick Ebersol's son, Charlie, an award-winning TV and film producer and director, created and directed this up coming documentary it airs on february 2nd on espn uh he's on talk is jericho today to talk about the experience to talk about the documentary and to talk about the xfl not just the experience of the xfl as well but also of living it as it all went down back then he was a teenager when his dad and vince came up with the idea he had a front row seat as the league unfolded and launched. He knows and shares what inspired some of the crazier aspects of the league, like the scramble to decide which team got the ball first, the no fair catch rule, 
and the strippers in the hot tub on the sidelines at the LA XFL games, right? So Charlie's sharing some of his own personal stories, as well as some surprising facts about the XFL and the legacy left behind, giving us a glimpse into the process it took to get this documentary up and running off the ground. Charlie uh, personally interviewed his dad and Vince McMahon, and then had to do a private advanced pre-screening of the documentary for Vince and Stephanie and Hunter at WWE headquarters. Wait till you hear about that story. So, set your DVRs once again. This was the XFL premieres on ESPN on February 2nd at 9 p.m. Eastern. It's the latest in the 30 for 30 series. Unbelievably well done. It's not a puff piece at all, as you're about to find out. We're going to talk about the XFL. We're also going to talk about Saturday's main event. Charlie was uh, just a little kid. We're going to get into that a little bit as well. All of this great, great stuff coming up soon. But first, I want to tell you to set a reminder on your phone. For one of Diamond Dallas Page's live DDP Yoga workouts from the DDP Yoga Performance Center in Smyrna, Georgia. He does them every week. And if you have the DDP Yoga Now app, then you can access the classes on your phone or tablet and do it live with DDP, man. If you buy the DDPY DVDs, you can do the workouts at home whenever you want. And you get three months of his amazing app for free. That means DDPY workouts anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And of course, DDP is sweetening the deal because he wants you to get your health and fitness on track and be the best you can possibly be both mentally and physically. So he's giving you, the, check this out, 25% off the DDPY program and all related merch. Plus, if you buy a max pack, you'll get a second for 50% off. And that's 50% off the 25% you already got off. That's crazy. That's a steal. All you got to do is go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho to check this out. You know what DDPY has done for me, what it's done for Jake the Snake. Scott Hall, Kane, AJ Styles, Mick Foley, Corey Taylor, Rich Ward. They're all doing the DDPY program as well. I wouldn't be having such an amazing WWE run this year if it wasn't for DDP Yoga. I'll tell you that right now. I wouldn't be uh, be tracking the new Fozzie record using my core. You got to sing. You really want to sing hard with power. You got to use your core. DDP helped me with that as well. So along with all of the stuff that I've been doing, my quality of life is better as well. And that's all due to DDPY Yoga. And I'm being dead serious when I say that DDP Yoga has, uh, has, has helped me um, live a normal life because I was in big, big pain. Lots of lots of uh, issues about five years ago with a herniated disc. All the doctors said I needed surgery. I said, no, I'm not getting surgery. DDP uh, Yoga came to the rescue and now I uh, feel better than ever. And like I said, here's your chance to get involved. Here's your chance to give it a shot because you get 25% off all DDPY merch and DVDs and if you buy a max pack or a combo pack, you'll get a second one for 50% off the price that's already 25% off. This is the biggest sale ever on the DDPY program. So take advantage of it and get on the path to healthier living today. Just go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's all you got to do to take advantage of this great deal. You dig? ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Change your life today. Get in the best shape physically and mentally you've ever been in and do it now. You are about to participate in a great adventure. Something I can see coming out of that black hole of the eyes. It might be a face. You wanted more of the best in paranormal talk radio? Podcast One and Jericho Network answered. Now, five nights a week beyond the darkness. Subscribe now. We feel over the 12 weeks of the season, 10 weeks of the regular season, and two weeks of the postseason, we're going to fall 
between a four and a five rating on Saturday night, which is uh, a great place to start. I mean, Saturday night is the one night of the week that none of the networks can get arrested. I mean, there hasn't been a hit there since Golden Girls, and most of the people who used to watch that are deceased. <laughs> I'm laughing because Charlie Ebersol just said he's turning 34 and the world is ending. <laughs> you old bastard. <laughs> so this, it's all downhill. This is great, though, because whenever we have shows at the Staples Center, um, you meet a whole collection of different people. You just mentioned O'Shea Jackson, who did the show a few months ago, and I got a chance to, to sit down with you and... You were telling me about the, the 30 for 30 that you did on the XFL, which to me is one of the most interesting things that I could ever think about because obviously it was a huge deal that was also just a tremendous bust as well. I can just imagine the, the tales that you heard to put together the, this documentary because 30 for 30 on, on ESPN is very, uh, uh, ESPN, right? Yep. Yeah, it's very well known and very hard hitting and a lot of depth. So how did you get uh, the idea to start working on this? Um, you know, I grew up around uh, the WWE. Um, right, because your father's Dick time, Ebersole. Yeah, at yeah. the time, the WWF. Um, about four years after I was born, my dad was introduced to Vince, and uh, they had a meeting, and six weeks later, they created Saturday Night's main event. Mm. And so my childhood um, was largely about, on Saturday nights, going to Saturday Mine too. Night's main event. Oh, you actually went? I was actually going to Saturday Night's main event. My babysitter growing up was Hulk Hogan because he was the last guy to wrestle every night, so his dressing room <laughs> was like the safest place for me to like be put. No kidding, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so growing up, I was, um, I was always around my dad and Vince succeeding. Like before I was born, my dad created Saturday Night Live with Lauren Michaels, and then he created Saturday Night's main event, and then he became the head of NBC Sports and became the most powerful person in sports um, by a number of different sort of measurements. Uh, and magazines. This is all through NBC, right? right? NBC, yeah. exactly. And, and, and just to interject, he, he also took over Saturday Night Live for a year or two when Lauren left, right? Five years. And those five are, years, and wow. And the five highest rated years of the show. Wow. And in the process, he discovered someone that you may know, uh, Eddie Murphy. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think that from my vantage point, everything my dad and Vince touched worked. It was just they were hits. They were everything worked. And I my dad's my hero, you know, mm. and Vince in a lot of ways for a long time was like my second dad, like the guy that I hung out with all the time who was sort of, you know, this is the generation of men who still were it was okay for a stranger to be a disciplinarian and sort of like step in. <laughs> so like, you know, this was a guy I not only respected but I revered and, and who was a big part of my life. And so when when the XFL came along it did not occur to me that it could fail, right? Like, it right. just was like, oh, okay. And now my father and Vince are going to take on the NFL, and they're going to beat the NFL at their own game, and they're going to create something amazing. And the first game, I went to Vegas. It proved itself out. It was like, you know, 54 million people watched the opening night. It was You're the biggest. Me. It was the biggest rating in uh, 10 or 15 years on a Saturday night. It was massive. And so it didn't occur to me it would fail. And then over the course of five months, it failed. And and quickly, right? Yeah, I mean, by the seventh week, it had gone from the highest rated Saturday night in 10 years to the lowest rated Saturday night ever. Oof. So Wow. And what struck me during it was the press was vicious, which they always have been, especially with Vince, but also with my dad, especially during that period. As he got more successful, the more the press sort of like dug in on him. And it was almost gleeful how they, mm. they were almost gleeful in taking it down. So it was troubling for me because as the son, 
you're like, screw you. This is, you know, this is my dad and whatever. But also, I was watching all this technology get invented that within 18 months, the NFL had taken all of it. The Skycam, the Bubba Cam, like all these things. So Stuff that was invented by the XFL is what 100%. you're saying, right? The Skycam was this thing that they'd use, my dad had used in 1985 once. And it was big and bulky and everyone's like, it's never going to be used again. And the NFL banned it said they would never work with it. So when the XFL came along, this director, John Gonzalez, who had been my dad's NFL director, was like, we should bring this thing back because this is what kids see football as. Mm. It's like when you watch Madden, you've got that right. angle. Right, good point. So they did that, and then all of a sudden the NFL comes along and you know the XFL mic'd all its players. Now the NFL mics all its players. The XFL used a Skycam. The NFL used a Skycam. The XFL interviewed players on the sidelines and coaches, and now all of a sudden the NFL is doing the same thing. So that was frustrating. So when, when ESPN originally came to talk to me and said, you know, because we'd been talking about doing a 30 for 30 for a while, and I'd never wanted to do anything because either the stories were without sort of a dramatic arc, but also I didn't feel like I was saying anything new. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I wanted something that I, the thing I, I love about 30 for 30 is that I admire about them is you watch one and you're like, wow, I didn't know. I, I knew the story, right. but I didn't know. And it doesn't matter what the subject is. They're always great. Exactly. Like the one that I love, which I did have a, a big connection with, was the Gretzky one and how Gretzky moved to LA in 88 and just all the stuff that I learned that I never knew, you know, and, and it, no matter what the topic is, you just learn so much about it. You get engrossed by it. No, that's exactly right. There's a, the, the Believe Land documentary about Cleveland, um, what it really opened my eyes to is I felt like I knew everything about the NFL and I knew and I always knew Art Modell was a bad guy. That's what everyone told me. And then you watch this documentary and you're like, this guy got screwed. Like mm. he he became a villain in storytelling. And it's only because that film really, you know, ESPN was he the owner of the Cleveland Browns who moved out. Gotcha. But what people don't realize is he's the one who got all the legislation passed to build the new baseball stadium, the new basketball stadium, all this stuff with the understanding that the city was going to help him oh, get a football yeah, stadium. Yeah, yeah. And so he was like, I'm the biggest draw, but I will help you with all these other things because I want to build the city. And then they were like, oh, by the way, mm. not only are we not going to give you that, but we're going to charge you all these other things. And they took it. <laughs> but the 30 for 30 ESPN gives you all this latitude to tell stories in a way that really matters. So, when we started talking about the XFL, I was like, here's the thing. If I do a film about the 30 for 30, uh, if I do a 30 for 30 about the XFL, I want it to be about three things. The love story between my dad and Vince, because it's a 30-year relationship that never had a contract. There was always a handshake, and they went through some really hard stuff and always were able to work it out, which I have not, you know, I've been in Hollywood for a really long time, and you don't see that. The second thing was, everything that fails is not a failure. You know, just because this thing went away after only one year, the legacy and what the echo effect of it was, was, hmm. you know, you can't watch a professional sport without seeing it. You can't watch Monday Night Raw without seeing the effects of what was created during the XFL. And the third thing was um, I wanted to talk about uh, how you accept failure gracefully. Because I think that one of the things you see now is when people fail, it's like, it's always bitter. It's always angry. And Vince and my father, right, wrong, or indifferent, when the XFL went away, every single contract was honored. Every mm. single person was paid. A lot of people had two-year guaranteed contracts, and they paid out of pocket. Um, wow. And and you know this because you work with them. But Vince is, for everything that you believe about Vince McMahon as an outsider, when you do business with Vince McMahon, if he says he's going to do something. <laughs> it's so funny because I'm having a situation with him right now where, where it's like, it's not even a question. Like other people around, it's like, well, you got it. It's like, we talked about it. Well, you got to get it in writing. I don't need it. I shook hands with him. 
That's all you need. That's old school, kind of like 50s, 60s, 70s business. Like you said, if he says he's going to do something, he does it. And I'm assuming your dad's probably the same way. That's why they get along so well. That's right. And right? and also, it's funny, Jesse Ventura's in the film. And Jesse and Vince have had some epic yeah, battles yeah. over the years. But the one thing Vince uh, gets out of everybody, that every single person I interviewed in the film said the same thing. Bob Costas, who also is in the film, who goes after Vince, he's like, you can say anything you want about the man. But he values relationships over every, which is what everyone says about my dad too. They value relationships over everything. I agree with that. And and that is my. I tell people that my. Uh, I didn't get an MBA. I didn't need one because my <laughs> MBA was sitting in control rooms. But my MB, If I told you the th- the things that my dad told me, he was like, you have to have passion for what you do, and you have to have you have to value relationships above everything else. Mm-hmm. And and. That's what I was trying to drive home with the film. Hmm. And, and just the fact, so, so let's go back to kind of, uh, they had a previous business relationship, Dick and Vince, with Saturday Night's Men, which was a huge you know, hit for, for everybody of our generation. I mean, you're 10 years younger, but still, Saturday Night's Men event was a thing. You would go every Saturday to whoever's house was hosting the party, or every month, and watch it, you know? And uh, what stemmed or spurred the initial conversation between Dick and Vince to try and start their own football league, which on the surface is completely insane to try and compete with the NFL. So before I tell you, I want to tell you another anecdote because you just reminded me of something. The story of how Saturday Night Main Event Please got tell me, man. is insane. So my dad for about three years had an agent. Um, and to this day, I don't think he understands why he had an agent, but he had an agent. And his agent was also David Letterman's agent. And the guy said, I'm thinking about taking on this new client and I think you should go meet him. It's a guy named Vince McMahon. My dad said, the guy's name is Marty, and he's like, Marty, I don't, I don't want to meet like a local sports promoter. Like, that's not what I want to do. He's like, no, trust me. So about two days later, my dad's, he's doing SNL at the time, so he's walking around um, the eighth floor at NBC, and Letterman is walking around as well. And he stops me and goes, Dave, you're never going to believe what our insane agent was saying to me the other day. He wants me to meet this guy, Vince McMahon. And uh, Letterman goes, have you seen what he does? He goes, no. He goes, listen, he does a thing called Tuesday Night Titans on cable access, whatever. You got to watch it. And essentially what the show was, was Vince sort of parodying Carson. So he would be behind the desk and then, you know, uh, Hogan or or whoever would Bobby Heenan. Exactly. Yeah, all those classics. And and then the set would always end up getting destroyed because someone (laughs) would have a fight. But it was really, really, really funny. And it was really – and my dad was like, look – it's great storytelling. It's soap opera. But also he's like, you know, if you added a little bit of production value to this thing, you could really do something. So he calls Marty back and he says, all right, I'll meet him. And they went and they had a meeting. And the meeting, the 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 myth that I've heard from a lot of people that my dad and Vince both say is not true is that the meeting was at a barber shop, which is hard to believe because my father's balding and Vince, I don't think, lets anyone cut his hair besides one person. So, But they have this meeting and they say we should do something together. And part of my dad's deal for Saturday Night Live is NBC had to give him a show for every year he kept SNL on the air. Oh, wow. Because when he came back. So he said to Vince, look, I think this should be one of those shows. Vince said, I agree. And they shook hands and they said, let's do a deal. And they got their lawyers involved. And for two weeks, the lawyers hashed it out. And eventually, Vince called my dad or my dad called Vince. And they're like, this is stupid. Like, why are we arguing over this stuff? 50-50. Whatever you get, I get. Done. Fast forward to 10 years later, my dad's, he did that for six years. He left. He cre- He became the head of NBC Sports. And Vince kept doing Saturday Night Main Event for a couple of years with NBC as his partner. 
And one day, my dad goes out to the mailbox in uh, our home in Connecticut, and there's a check, a six-figure check from the McMahons. And so my dad calls Linda and says, um, what, what is this? And they said, oh, we sold the video rights to Saturday Night Main Event in Indonesia, and this is your cut. And my dad said, well, we don't have an international deal. Like, we don't have that. And they said, no, you're our partner, 50-50. Mm-hmm. That's what you get. And that lesson, my dad would tell me that lesson. It was like the Christmas story at my house. Like, that lesson would come out once a year. <laughs> be like, this is what partnerships are. So fast forward to 2001, my dad is uh, in, in 1998, the NFL made a deal with uh, CBS and Fox where NBC was pushed out of football for the first time in 50 years. Largely because my father, it's, it's a bit complex, but basically the NFL figured out in the early 90s that they could get networks to pay more money than they would make, meaning the, 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 the networks would take a loss on it because it promoted their other shows. Right. And Just the prestige of being involved with the NFL. Yeah, exactly. The thing was, my dad worked for NBC, who was owned by GE, and my dad did not like going to General Electric meetings and explaining why they were losing $150 million a year on the NFL. So in 98, he said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to pay. And he walked, which had never happened before. And so 1999 was the la- the 98 Super Bowl, which was played in January of 99, was the last Super Bowl on NBC or the last NFL game on NBC. And keep in mind, my dad had produced NBC had produced four out of the last five Super Bowls at that point. Wow. Like they were the gold standard. Right. And so within that, they um, were looking at uh, uh, what are we going to do? Because now we don't have football. What he didn't know was 90 miles away in Connecticut, Vince had brought this guy, Basil DeVito, um, who had worked for him forever, into his office and said, I want to create a new football league. And there's a mythology around that, too, that he tried to buy the Vikings and that he'd gotten laughed out of the room by the sort of very conservative NFL owners. And Vince had said, you guys are killing football. Like, I'll teach you. But anyway, they wrote a business plan in six weeks and they announced the league. (laughs) <laughs> with nothing, no television network, no team names, no stadiums, nothing. But they did it in New York in New York City at the WWE restaurant. And NBC had a closed network feed that they were just taping what he was doing. And in my dad's office at NBC, they had that, that was just on a television. On There were like eight televisions in my dad's office. And one of them was running it. And his assistant said, Dick, you, you have to see this. Because she had worked for my dad, and Vin, she, her first job was working for Vince 25 years ago. Gotcha, okay. So they turn up the audio, and Vince is like, you know, the NFL is the no-fun league, and we're creating a football league, and screw them. Smash-mouth football. Exactly. Yeah. Not for panty waste and sissies. and like all this <laughs> So my dad says to, to uh, his assistant, Amy, he says, get him on the phone when he walks off stage. So Vince walks off stage, gets in his car to drive back to Connecticut. And my dad gets him on the phone and says, do you have a deal? And he goes, no, we don't have anything. And he goes, let's make a deal. Mm. So a week later, Vince comes back to New York. He does, you know, he's got Raw and all these other things. He comes back to New York. They sit in a room together with Ken Shanzer, who's my dad's number two, and Basil. Mm. And they negotiate a 50-50 joint venture. They're both going to put $100 million in. Good Lord. And NBC bought a 30% share in WWE, and they negotiated it in, like, 10 days. Wow. And they announced six weeks later that they had a 50-50 partnership. Now, a very small anecdote alongside this. My mom and dad met in 1981 when my dad came back to do SNL. He produced two shows before they shut down to sort of revamp the show. And when he brought the show back, 
the first host was my mom. And your my, mom is Susan St. Susan James. Susan St. James, right. Famous actress. And my mom. Which just struck me right now when you said, I'm like, holy smokes, your mom is Susan St. James. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom hosts SNL. My dad meets her the week before so they can do rehearsals and everything. They get married six weeks to the day after they meet. So my dad met and married in six weeks. <laughs> Vince wrote the business plan in six weeks and they did a deal in six weeks. I was like, Dad, maybe there's something to this. You might want to take uh, some extra time next time for one of these things, right? Now, initially when it was announced, I'm, I'm sure that, that the mainstream sports world was probably kind of laughing or were they concerned or, or what were they thinking? There's a great quote in the first press conference. This guy, um, am I allowed to curse? Mm -hmm. There is a, uh, this guy says to Vince, there's a huge press conference when he announces. There are like 65 or 70 press outlets. At the thing, this guy stands up and goes, is this your quest to go legit? And Vince looks right at him and goes, may I never be thought of as fucking legit. <laughs> and that sort of kicked off the relationship between the press and Vince. When they announced um, the Ventura, Jesse Ventura, Jesse the Body, was going to be the announcer, Vince, like, unprompted, nobody's picking a fight with him, just goes off on the press and is like... We're, we tell real stories, the truth, something you, the press, are not familiar with. And like, you're like, holy fuck. Like, who are you yelling at? No one's in the Which room. is so funny, too, because Vince and Jesse had a huge lawsuit over announcing from the videotapes of the 80s that went all through the 90s. Saturday Night's Main Event. Saturday Main Event, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. So to bring him on as the announcer for the football league kind of blew my mind right off the bat. Not to mention, he was the active governor of the state of Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, it's like... You couldn't write that. No, you couldn't. <laughs> Nothing about the XFL. Forgot about that. I had to I had to spend a fortune making this documentary getting actual news footage because every time something insane happens, I had to be like, no, look, here's Tom Brokaw to validate that that actually happened. <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You know, in the past, all football games get started with a coin toss. No way, Jose. Here we are in the XFL. We're going to compete for the right to choose who possesses the ball at the start of the game. Two players, one ball. Whoever possesses the ball gets his choice, not only for the start of the game, but also for overtime, should that be necessary. Good luck, guys. All right, sitting here with Charlie Ebersol, who created and directed the upcoming ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. This was the XFL that premieres February 2nd at 9 p.m. Okay, so Charlie, what was the mindset behind the XFL? I mean, what were they trying to do to be different? Well, so there's two, there's two answers to that question. The first one is... They wanted to create a fan experience like the WWE, which I think if you talked about Vince's biggest skill set as an entertainer is that he listens to his audience. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I remember being backstage with you uh, a couple of weeks ago at Raw, and you and Ashton were working out your bit. And you said, I mean, this think about this. Vince is in his 60s. Uh, early 70s. Early 70s. Now, yeah. And he's still sitting in the gorilla mm -hmm. monsoon position mm -hmm. doing calling him. But that you were doing a 
30-second live hit with Ashton, and he's giving you creative notes on, no, this is how you have to do the pause before you come around and say, mm-hmm. like... That's right, yeah. That's insane. I mean, amazing, but insane. So Every detail is overseen by Vince. And when we say every detail... It's every detail, dude. Like, you hold your water in your left hand because it'll look better on camera. Like, every little thing that you can think of is overseen. On some level, I am I think it's amazing and great that Steph and Paul, uh, Triple H, are so sort of in lockstep with what Vince's vision is. But I don't – Stephanie and I talk about this a lot because when I did this film, it was a lot about our dads. And mm-hmm, so, like, I was sure. looking for someone to, like – it's a kindred you know, spirit with her, for sure. And interviewing both of our dads, I mean, I was, like, freaking out. My dad, um, Steph said something. She was like, I said to Steph, I was like, I don't envy your position because you have to carve your own identity out of something that mm-hmm. was made entirely in your father's image, you know? Right. Um, and I, that's... A great quote from O'Shea was saying, you were born on third base, I, what like a great you, quote. The end of that quote, oh, by the way, is you're born on third base, so don't act like you hit a triple. <laughs> that's great. That's Which a good, yeah. I, the, uh, that's, uh, that's 100%. And you have to, you know, you spend a lot of your life thinking about, like, did you earn? Mm-hmm. Like, I, my, I look at my girlfriend who's built this incredible company, but she did it from nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, came from nothing. And I, and I say to her a lot, I'm like, I envy, the thing I envy the most about you, my parents did that. They had nothing and they built up. What I envy is that everything you have, you know you earned. Right. Like, it's your yeah, car, your yours. house, your whatever. Which is not to say that I, you know, I started my first company when I was 12. <laughs> I sold my first company when I was 16. <laughs> but I'm not unaware of the fact that even if I wasn't given money by my family, I was given access. I wasn't, if I wasn't given, Great you point. know, investment, I was given relationships and support and all this other stuff. I mean, and and so you have to find that balancing. None of that is an answer to your question. Mm-hmm. The XFL was two things. On the the public-facing side, it was listening to the audience because the NFL by 2001 had – you weren't allowed to dance after you scored a touchdown, and there was a $5,000 fine or something like that if you gave the ball to a fan after you scored. Really? Yeah, so you'd be giving the ball to a kid with muscular dystrophy or whatever in the crowd, and they would fine you for doing it. Like, they just lost their way, right? Mm -hmm. And and Vince talked about it. He said there's nothing – you know, they were called the no-fun league at the time. Like, they'd lost sort of sight of what it was. And so Vince was like, there's a, there's a gap in the market. If someone comes in and does something that's fun and smash mouth and sort of rekindles that thing, but also brings in Monday Night Raw is the most successful live cable show of all time, right? And he is that because of what he does in terms of reading the audience. That was the public. The business side, which is the much more, I think, interesting side of the story, which we don't even really get into that much in the film, you're borrowing the NFL when you buy it. Right, so if you're NBC, you pay them five hundred million dollars. Fox in 1998 paid them five hundred fifty million dollars a year. They were making a little over three hundred and twenty-five million. So they're losing a hundred and hundreds of millions, seventy-five yeah. million dollars. Right, and you don't own anything. At the end of four years, you've invested, you know, uh, two point yeah. two billion dollars, and you have nothing to show for it. Other you're than- leasing the rights to the NFL. Yeah, exactly. Now. 60 years ago, the NFL was basically paying networks to put them on the air because they were nothing. And at the time, had the network said, you know what? You don't have to pay us anything, but we want a 20% stake in the NFL. You know, the, the NFL makes $12, $12 billion a year in just sub fees, mm-hmm. just being paid by ESPN, right. NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox. So the thought process between when my dad walked from the NFL in 98, he and Ken Shanzer, his number two, 
they actually had met with Turner, who had also gotten frozen out of the NFL, and they were like, why the hell are we license leasing? Why don't we buy? Like, mm-hmm. why don't we build mm-hmm. from scratch? So if you figure they lose $150 million, a minimum of $150 million a year by doing a deal with the NFL, why not invest $100 million a year, uh, $100 million over two years? Into your own. Into something you own, that if it works, if the XFL works, even a little bit, mm-hmm. right? I mean, here's the thing. The, the XFL is a disaster, right? In terms of public perception, it failed. They made $27 million in ticket sales alone. So they only lost the first year. Everyone thinks they lost $100 million. They only actually lost, when all was said and done, about $36 million. Hmm. I ta- I'd take that loss all day if it, versus losing $150, $200, $275 sure, 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 million sure. a year. So the business model of the XFL, in some respects, I still don't really understand why they let it, why they didn't just keep, tr- which Vince keep does going. neither. Yeah, because even if it starts to pick up speed at all, you're at a break even at worst. And you're making money at best. And you're dealing with guys, especially at that point, I think Vince had just gone public, you're dealing with a literal billionaire. So losing $36 million is not that big of a deal. To you and I, it's astronomical, but to him, it's not that big of a deal. No, and General Electric is a $500 billion sure, dollar right, company right, right, at the right. time. They're the biggest company in the world. So like, and keep in mind, they were paying a billion four for the rights to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there was a lack of money. I think the perception, this is television, right? They lost 30, NBC lost $36 million on the XFL. The same year, they spent $36 million four different times on failed television comedy shows wow. that they went, because t- comedy shows $3 million an episode at that time. Yeah. So you figure they do the 13 that they're committed yeah. to, that's $39 million, and then that show doesn't work. Like, you know, Joey went more than a half a season, but like the Joey yeah. Tribbiani show, that... They didn't get to syndication. They didn't get four yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So that's just money down the drain. Right. I'm like, you know, you look at the XFL, the long-term value, even if you just create something that gives you a competitive advantage in negotiating with the NFL, there's a business model there for sure. So when you mentioned earlier, and, and there's so much to, to, to kind of digest and talk about, but you mentioned earlier that it started as the highest rated Saturday night in years and ended up as the lowest rated ever in just seven weeks. Why was there such a drop uh, especially when you're talking about all the things you just mentioned as far as, you know, the buzz and then the money that was spent wasn't really all that much. Why such a drop and then why pulling the plug so quickly? So there's a couple of things. First of all, they got incredibly unlucky in one regard, or actually a couple of regards. The first game, about three weeks before the first game happened, they only did four scrimmage games. So they only got to see the quality of play four times against each other. And they made an internal decision in watching the just scrimmages, they were looking for personality because they were like, quality play is not going to be NFL quality, so we need people who are going to pop. And there was a guy um, who was the head coach of the New York, New Jersey hitmen, uh, a guy named Rusty Tillman, who during the scrimmage was big and larger than life and huge and kicking over trash cans and all this stuff. And they were like, awesome. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's sort of that old school crazy coach is going to give a great halftime and we're going to have so much stuff. Plus his team did really well in the scrimmage. And so they said, okay, we're going to change our plans. Originally, the game was they were going to do the Orlando. They're going to do the the opening game is going to be in Orlando, and they decided to switch it to Vegas. This is like three weeks before the the first game, and the game becomes New York Orlando. Uh, excuse me, it becomes New York Las Vegas gotcha. in Vegas. Right, and the game is terrible. Mm. It's nineteen to nothing. It ends nineteen to nothing, and New York only gets like thirty seven rushing yards in the whole game. And Tillman. 
who in his interview in the film talks about it a little bit. Is this in relation to Pat Tillman? No. Okay, no. okay. I didn't um, know if there was... Just a, that such, would be crazy, actually. Well, yeah, yeah. But so, um, so go ahead. Sorry. Although I think he coached Pat Tillman. Okay. As a complete weird side note. Okay. The game was a blowout and it didn't go over well. And, and so when I interviewed Tillman, Tillman's like, yeah, I had fun in the scrimmage game because we were just scrimmaging and getting the guys riled up. But I'm not going to do that on national television. And NBC didn't assume, they thought it was WWE. They just thought, you know, we're going to put Jericho out there, and Jericho knows he has to be big, and so he's going to go be big. Right. And he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one. So the game's a blowout. So people tune out. If you actually look at the quarter rating, so every 15 minutes Nielsen puts tells you what yeah. your rating was. The rating actually started at a 12, and the game ended at like uh, an 8-5, which is why they got a 10-5 rating, which is 54 million people. By the way, they were expecting a 5 rating. Wow. So it really overperformed because it was probably yeah, one of the double. it was probably the best marketing launch of all time. I mean, it's like iPhone sales, like crazy, mm. right? So the first game's crap. The second game, and we get into this a little bit in the film, but not really the controversy. In the second game, keep in mind the ratings are every fifteen minutes. Thirteen minutes into the game, the power goes out. So the way television, God. they have they have satellite trucks that are broadcasting to New York, right? They are run by two gas generators, one one primary and a backup, and they're plugged into the LA Coliseum wall. Somehow, someone forgot to plug the wall in, and both generators were bone dry. Now, we talk about it in the film as like, wow, some boneheaded guy. You cannot tell me that the two most professional production agencies in the world, that nobody thought to check that Something there was happened. any gas in the gas generators, and so it's weird, and it's one of those things that I didn't want. Look, I, it's so conspiratorial, and I can't really like back yes, anything it up. Is. But it's one of those things that Vince has a funny line. He says, "You know, he goes, I know my guys are good." Right. And this was NBC, right? Right. So NBC has to, you know, they have to be really good. So yeah. someone forgot to put gas in the generator. It was weird. Now the other part where they got unlucky was the Vegas game. The first week was crap. The other two major games that weekend, so they played two games at once. They'd have an A and a B game. The A game was Vegas. The B game was the Orlando game. It was supposed to be the opposite. The Orlando game was like 34 to 37 and had like Exciting. crazy touchdowns yeah. and everything you could possibly want. So they got unlucky in which game they picked as the first game, which I think hurt them because then the perception was they've got all this great stuff, but the, sh- the football shit. Yeah. Then the second week... They don't know what their opening rating was because 13 minutes, the power goes out and the first rating is delivered at five. So you as a viewer, if they show a trouble screen, meaning, I'm sorry, technical difficulty yeah. for two and a half minutes, which is what happened, you tell me if you're staying tuned. Right. So their opening night number, uh, excuse me, their second, second night, night number, number is half. They get they do a five, the number they thought they were going to do the first mm-hmm. week, but I can do math. Like you cannot tell me that that was yeah. their actual rating. Right, 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 you know right, I mean? right, right. Because, by the way, the rating started to come back at the end of the game, which suggested people were coming back as that game right, got yeah, better. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That game went into triple, uh, double overtime and was amazing. And Tommy Maddox, who was the quarterback for L.A. He was the star of the of the, of the of And the went on league. to win a Super Bowl. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's that they got very unlucky in those first two weeks. I also think they, they hyped something they could not deliver, which Meaning? was... Well, like the opening commercial for the XFL was they were training in a military battlefield and explosions are going off as they're catching balls. And at the end of the commercial, a guy catches a punt and is hit by a wrecking ball and they say, no fair catch. (laughs) 
And the purpose of no fair catch wasn't that people were going to get obliterated. The purpose of no fair catch was punts would be live so that if you you didn't have that thing where people just fair catch and the game stops the forever. Whatever, yeah. yeah, exactly. You'd have every ball be live. More like, like Aussie rules football. But no one really understood the rules because they'd written the business plan in six weeks. So when the marketing team took it, they were like, oh, no fair catch. That means people are going to get obliterated. Let's do that. And so the whole ad campaign was like bloodlust. It was like, <laughs> we're going to kill these people. Um, what were some of the, the, the rule differences? You mentioned no fair catch. Was there other rules that were different Yeah, you as well? know what's funny? So they – it's counterintuitive, right? The, mm-hmm. the reason that I think the NFL has been so successful over the last 10 years is because the rules have all benefited the offense. So – Peyton Manning and Tom Brady are putting up the greatest numbers in the history of quarterbacks, and a lot of that has to do with it's like with the ruling. Yeah, yeah when, like when a player scores sixty points in a basketball game today, I'm like, it's incredibly impressive that someone can do that, but they're also doing it with no hand check. So like Michael Jordan was scoring forty five points, and people were basically punching him in the <laughs> right, chest every right, time he right, shot. right, 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 right. LeBron is getting to run half mm-hmm. the court without ever being. It's the same at. thing talking about eighties NHL with Gretzky getting the points he got compared exactly. to today. You'll never see that again. No, right. No, I mean Stanley Crosby is an incredible yeah. player, but he's playing in a version of the league where like. There are no enforcers on the ice yes. now. You know what I mean? There yeah. aren't guys who are there just to beat the hell out of There's a trap system. There's so much between the red line and blue line, blue line, blue line. So, yeah, I see exactly so, what you're so, going with. But so the reason I say that is because they had a little bit of a disconnect when they created the XFL. They wanted smash mouth football, but to make it more successful, they needed to score more points. But the thing is, is that coaches and, and, and football operations people – don't want offenses to be huge because offenses being huge make the defense look really bad and defenses looking bad are usually why people don't win championships. Mm. So they hired former NFL guys to write the playbook. So the playbook has a bunch of new rules, but they all benefit the defense. You're allowed to basically hang on the receiver the entire time. There's basically no pass interference. You can maul the quarterback whenever you want. And they market it as like the quarterbacks can't be these sissies who get protected. <laughs> but you're like losing quarterbacks like like they're because they're getting blindsided right, right, after right, they've right, let go right. of the ball. How about the uh, the coin toss? There's no coin toss. Scramble. Talk about that. Yeah, so uh, about, <laughs> that one. about a week before the scrimmages when it was abundantly – so they get this playbook. And everyone's like, okay. And no one really reads it except Ken Shanzer, this guy, my dad's number two, who's, you know, a former lawyer and really detail-oriented. And he goes to Vince, and he's like, Vince, this is not what you think this is. Like, these rules are not the Mm. rules you think. And Vince says, it's our league. If we don't like it after the first game, we can just change the rules accordingly. It's like NASCAR. Like, NASCAR, the rules only exist that week per and race then, yeah yeah the next race they're like oh so-and-so's got too many points well now you get 50 points if you, you know what <laughs> yeah, i mean like yeah, stuff yeah. the benefits to keep it interesting but ken i think accurately said he's like if you don't get them in the first half of the first game they're never coming back and so he said we need something at the beginning so they're like well what about the co-? he said what about the coin toss and everyone's like well vince what did or ken no did. ken said ken to vince it. and vince and a couple other guys were like well what about the coin toss he's like why do we play a game ken says why do we play a game that's so much about athleticism and violence and all this other stuff, and then decide who gets the ball by someone by some random non-athlete flipping a coin. It's like that's ridiculous. It should be in the fate of the hands. So this is what we'll do. <laughs> we'll line two players up on thirty-five, and then we'll put a ball on the fifty on the ground, and whoever gets to the ball first and possesses it gets the ball. 
which is awesome. It's called the Scramble. It's, they didn't, by the way, a great, uh, great story. Um, the head writer of the WWE at the time, who Brian Gewertz? Brian. Yeah. So Brian and I. This is after I finished the film, etc. We we were having we just someone introduced us when we were talking, and he was actually on the flight to Vegas with my dad, Vince, Triple H, Ken, Basil, Shane, Stephanie. And Michelle, who's the head of CMO. Michelle Wilson. Yeah, yeah, Michelle Wilson, yeah, CMO of the WWE. 48 hours before the first game, trying to figure out what they're going to call it. Like, the suicide scramble, oh. the whatever. Like, they didn't have a name. So anyway, they do it. And on the Vegas-New York game, it goes perfectly well. In the Orlando game, the Orlando guy breaks his arm in four places, <laughs> which starts a trend. 60% of the players who did it the first two weeks were knocked out of the season. In the scramble. For the season, wow. before the game ever started. So, you know, it was like, there was a lot of like, when I say <laughs> yeah. bad luck, they really... Yeah. Yeah, they the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If you could be guaranteed that it would increase ratings, would you fix the games? What, I fi what a ridiculous statement. It's not a statement, it's a question. It's a question. I beg your pardon. It's a question. No. It's either football or it's not. Now, if it's entertainment, then no different than I did... You know, a long time ago, you know, when my predecessors tried to pawn off that wrestling was sport years ago, you know, I mean, that's And absurd. you came out and said it's sports entertainment and entertainment. the matches are staged. Right. Absolutely. So how could you possibly script a football game? You mentioned the, some of the players. We talked about Tommy Maddox, who was like the shining star of, of the, the league. But where did they get all these players from? Because obviously NFL has got the best guys locked up and kind of all throughout. A couple of things. College football, Division One football, is outputting 4,000 guys mm. a year or something like that. And they only have three places they can go. They can go to the NFL, they can go to Arena League, or they can go to the Canadian Football League. Right, yeah. The NFL draft is, is nine rounds, and it's 270, it's 270 players. So you have several thousand players each year going into this big wow, trough. Wow, gotcha. And they're only taking 270 that are going to the league, and then the league only uses, like, I think there are only 1,500 active players mm -hmm. in the NFL. So when you really boil down to people that are on practice squads and all the other stuff. So Vince and Basil, and really Basil, when he wrote the business plan, his premise was we just need to pay more money than the next closest thing. Like the Arena right. League was paying 25 and Canadian football was playing like 30 and so they paid $45,000 or $40,000 and then they had that pay system where if you won a game you got paid more. Gotcha. So the winning team would make more. So they were basically just saying to everyone like you want to come play in a league and then also they had Vince which you know you know this but like 99, 2000, 2001 WWE is like massive. Massive. Like massive. Like it's, it's difficult to even understand. Even with the success of WWE now, it's really difficult to appreciate how big you guys were. I mean, probably the closest they ever came to touching Saturday Night Main Event. I mean, Saturday Night Main Event is a third of one of one out of every three televisions watching. But you guys are doing 98,000 well, well, people at you know in Toronto. And basically it's based around the fact in the 80s around Saturday Night Main Event you had Hogan. 
who was the biggest star of his generation. And three networks. Yeah, right. right. But we had Rock and Austin at the same time. So the, if you look at the three biggest stars, it's Hogan, Rock, and Austin, and we had both of them at the same time, which will show you like just how big the business was because they're both at their peaks at this time. A hundred percent. And then also, I think you, what used to happen in the eighties was people would just sort of like you'd have the Iron Sheik, who is just this sort of like, okay, this is a bad guy, yeah, and he's yeah. going to do this one thing. Like your character, for example, in the late nineties, early two thousands, was really complex. Mm-hmm. Like you had a lot, sort of the the Y two J. Like there was yeah. all this stuff going on in that sort of mm-hmm. character. And so it allowed for different segments of the population that traditionally would not have given sure two shits. All of a sudden, are like, yeah, I like The Rock, but now I'm going to follow Chris because he's got this. And there thing was also the wrestling war with WCW, so it was a really big time for wrestling. So you're saying because the ex, uh, because Vince was the owner of the XFL, it attracted players to come. They had forty thousand applications wow. in thirty days after the initial announcement. Wow. They didn't have teams. They didn't have towns. They didn't have cities. They didn't have stadiums. They didn't have anything. So like that was that was a big part. The guys who showed up for practice and scrimmages and everything, they got paid per diem until the beginning of the season. Mm. Like this was very people were falling all over themselves. The opening of the film, there is a uh, press conf uh, sorry, no, there's an all team meeting. They did two. They did one in Vegas, one in Orlando. Four teams in Orlando, four teams in Vegas when they were doing the preseason. And my dad and Vince spoke. And when Vince talks to those guys, there are like a lot of witnesses. John Coachman is one of them who is in the room. And he's like, it was like Jesus Christ was talking. Because wow. these guys, every single one of them to the man was a WWE fan. Right, right, They knew right. everything about it. So Vince is up there saying, hey, I did this. Now we're going to do the same thing here. Play up the personality, et cetera. Everything they've been told about how to play football is thrown out the window. And they're like, all that, you know, the... Miami of the 80s and the late 90s like we want that that's what we want because we're gonna what we lack in skill we're gonna make up for in personality so by the time it got there it was at fever pitch it was you know insane well, and you're talking about some of the players and, and the one that I remember and you actually just showed me his jersey earlier of course is, is he hate me whose real name was Rod Smart Rod Smart and I think I told you the story but it's a funny story and I'm sure people can find it on the network or whatever where one time I had to be a referee in a match and I had to wear a he hate me jersey <laughs> and I remember talking with Brian he's like Vince wants you to wear this he hate me jersey I'm like why yeah, he wants you to do you know it's the XFL thing so I went to Vince he goes well we're trying to get this guy he's a star he's got a personality he's called he hate me he wrote that on the back of his jersey so you're going to wear his jersey as a referee to uh, promote the XFL and I'm like this makes no sense but whatever I'll wear the freaking he hate me jersey but what was the story of, of he hate me so Rod's a really interesting guy he was sort of the the reason he came up with the name was because he no matter how good he was there was always somebody that sort of had an issue with him so coaches he would like he'd put up 200 yards in a game and the coach would be like yeah but it was because of x y or z and you know he had a little bit he hate me man yeah Yeah. exactly and so he was like he hate me and it was a little of the barry bonds thing but the funny thing is so they going in they were like we want personality so they were going to let the players their whole thing was the nfl doesn't allow personality we're going to overload you more than so you were allowed to write whatever you wanted on your on the back of your shirt so four hours before the game they go to rod and they say you can't have he hate me on the back of the jersey because we think it's a gang thing he's like no it's not he's trying to explain to him like well you need to explain to vince so rod runs out onto the field and grabs vince he's like no this is what it is and vince is like oh that's cool do it (laughs) at the same time vince is handed a list of the new york team 
And they say, are you cool with all these nicknames? Can you sign off on it? And Vince looks at the list and he goes, yeah, this is good. And he hands it back. And the guy goes, did you really read the whole list? And Vince goes, yeah, why? And he goes, look at number, you know, whatever. He goes, why? What does it say? He goes, teabagger. <laughs> and they're like, are you cool with teabagger? <laughs> and Vince is like, no, no, what? So then they had to go back through. So it was one team voted to not have any nicknames. Hmm. And one team voted to have their team name on their back. And it didn't go through. But that was, they were like, we don't want to be individual. Like we're there was, a team, it was, yeah. It was interesting to see how people mm. dealt with it, yeah. Now, you're talking about some of the, the pomp and circumstance, <laughs> the personalities, and another big thing about, about the XFL was the cheerleaders, how they were going to involve the cheerleaders. And kind of tell us a little bit about that. And side the of cheerleaders, the yeah. Uh, Vince said two things that I love. He said, uh, the cheerleaders need to be a focus. Why are they just sort of off to the side? We So they, they took away the camera. So... The way a football game is covered is they have camera positions built up into the stands. That's you know what you see when you watch a game. So they and in most stadiums they have them on both sides because when the sun goes over. So they knew they were going to be playing most of their games at night. So they just eliminated half the camera positions and just put the cheerleaders on the camera pens, like so they'd be in the crowd dancing. But the the best sort of side story is L.A. was trying to like get people to show back up and they're doing all those other things. So they decided this is like three or four games in the season, that they were going to... All the teams were owned by the league, which is right. one of the big business deals. And so there was this sort of structure that, like, the teams had a president and they had a GM. And the GM really was running the the business side of it. And then the president was really sort of the with the head coach, and they would do that. So that was, that was siloed, and the GM would be responsible for marketing and getting things. So, like, in Orlando, they had, like, a big deal with, like, Opie and Anthony, and they had a whole integration right, yeah. and these kind of things. In L.A., they were like, well, we need to WWF-ifies this. But they weren't really WWF people, right? Like, they were, like, sports people who just sort of interpreted what Vince was doing, which often imitated never replicated. Yes. So they installed, I swear to God, they installed a hot tub just past the end zone, and they tried to get the cheerleaders to do it. And the head, the woman who ran the cheerleaders was like, no, so we're cheerleaders. Hang out in the hot tub? So they went to Spearmint Rhino and just got it's a- famous strip club. Got a bunch of strippers, and they just put them- They weren't naked, but they put them in the hot tub. And like, I, I was like, there are photos of this in like the LA Times. And like, Vince is like, Vince is laughing about it now, but Vince at the time was like, you seriously misunderstand our brand. Like, right, right, That is right, right. not- if you can go to a strip club and see it, then why would you pay to see it at the XFL? Yeah. Like, that's not what our model is. Like, it's about what is the thing that's happening that's unique and different. Mm-hmm. So they had stuff like that. But the cheerleaders were amazing. The cheerleaders, um, Vince uh, famously said he encouraged the players to date the cheerleaders <laughs> so they could interview them if, like, a player screwed up during the game and be like, so did you do the wild thing last night? Like, why is he not playing well? <laughs> <laughs> Which was then very broadly interpreted because John Coachman, coach, mm-hmm. dated one of the cheerleaders, and he was a sideline announcer in the league. He told me to, Vince. And I was like, um, I think you first took a very broad interpretation of what Vince was talking about. And second, um, do you think that created a conflict of interest when you're doing interviews? And he's like, hell yeah, it did. <laughs> so, and that kind of gave the, uh, to some people, gave the league kind of a trashy image. Oh, yeah. I remember Bob Costas was very upset about it. Uh, that, that he was saying it was a trashy thing and all this other stuff. People saying, well, I'll take a look at what Vince McMahon has cooked up, and I saw the promos. There are others who are put off by that. Who's put off? 
And in what way? What have we done in anything with the XFL? What, we have cheerleaders? We said right out front we were going to have cheerleaders, nice-looking ladies that you were going to get to know, unlike the NFL, sort of has them but doesn't have them kind of a thing. If nothing else, we are brutally honest about who we are and what we are presenting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the, league, uh, the league did not make any efforts to get traditional sports fans and traditional sports critics, reporters, you know, made no effort to make them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, it was very much like screw Us you, versus them. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I'll tell you, because I've talked to Bob about this, because Bob's in the film. Mm-hmm. Bob and Vince were real. Well, let me back up. Bob and my dad are inseparably close. My dad created later with Bob Costas. Bob was his guy right. for 30 years, and they were really close. What most people don't know is that Bob and Vince were really close. Bob worked on WrestleMania three, yeah, and and a bunch of other things. So he had a good relationship with Vince. He's a really big old school wrestling fan, mm-hmm. like um, uh, like he was a huge San Martino fan. Like and and throughout the 80s, he loved the like. You know, uh, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, like, yeah, you know, all yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Hogan. Like a lot of people, the attitude era of what what Vince really realized in the late 90s, early 2000s was to compete with WCW and beat WCW, he had to create the attitude era, yeah. which um, had the like kiss my ass club and like mm, that kind the, of stuff. Naked chicks and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, and that really upset a lot of people who I think were the traditionalists who love the like Hogan yeah Andre the family time. aspect of it right and everyone did I mean if you look at Vegas I, I love I, we're, <laughs> Vegas went from like Disneyland in the desert to like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas right. and now they're back to like come swim with the dolphins yeah, you're yeah, like what yeah, the yeah. hell I mean WWE sort of did the same thing but that era really galvanized and it was right when the XFL mm-hmm. came out so like you had the Attitude Era and Degeneration X and Suck It and like all this other stuff and you had WWE full tilt in the XFL and as the XFL ratings went down my dad everyone was saying to Vince like do that magic thing you do that makes <laughs> raw work and like sprinkle that Vince McMahon <laughs> dust on it. And the way to do that was like, we're going in the cheerleaders locker room was like a, was a right. stunt they did. And you can't do that if the product isn't good and, and people's perception, whether or not the games were good, cause there were really good games in that middle area. The majority of the sports critics and fans had seen the first game. Gosh. Yeah. The and minds have been made up right exactly. off the bat. And so then you can't tease someone back to a conversation yeah, yeah, once yeah, they've yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. formed that opinion. Um, well, you can in the WWE because you can be a heel and you can become a face pretty quickly, but, you know, and vice versa. You can't really do it if they're not, you know, mm. already on board. And I think Costas had a legitimate gripe because, you know, as an outsider who wasn't really watching Raw but sort of understood it, when he sees, like, Vince making someone do something that's inappropriate or uh, Rikishi, mm-hmm. yeah, Rikishi shoving giant butts yeah. in his ass, like, all that kind of stuff, I think he was like, I this is a, this is a degradation of culture that I'm not comfortable with and I don't want to see. And then he saw it seeping into professional sports. And I say he, it's not just Costas, it was it was a huge segment of the sure. population. I think Costas is the only one who had the the backbone 
to sit five inches away from Vince and say it to his face and mm -hmm. have that debate. And this is not from people necessarily who wish you ill, but within the business... Well, I'll, I'm sure there's no one who wishes me well, ill. Well, I'm sure there are many know? people who do, but I think some <laughs> objective people... And why would they wish me ill? People, tell me, why did they want to wish me ill? The, the show's only, the show's only an hour long. There are, many, uh, there are many people, we'll get to it in a minute, who consider what you've done on the WWF, while right. successful, to be objectionable. We'll get to that in a minute. But I think the part most people miss is that Bob really respects Vince, and Vince really respects Bob. And so their interview about the interview, which is in the film, I think is really fun because they're saying, like, what people forget is they did this interview on HBO that was, like, hugely Vince rated. threw the papers in his face, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. He's pointing at him, like, really. Yeah, like, looks right like in his face, yeah. His ass, yeah. Um, they did a follow-up. Vince called him the next morning and was like, that was great television, you want to do round two? <laughs> and they went back like four months later and did another five months later and did a follow-up. The conversation though, I think, that got them the initial big rating was they had this expectation of bloodlust and, and women are going to be naked mm -hmm. dancing and, and screwing fans in the crowd yeah, or whatever yeah, right, was they were going right, to be right, doing. Right. And you could never live up to that, you know? It's sure, like, you could. No, because like you mentioned, about seven weeks in, but about four weeks in or so, NBC pulled the plug on its, on its broadcast? Or no, did they still air? No, 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 no. NBC aired the entire first season. So <laughs> they got all the way down to it, but the rating was like, I mean, the Million Dollar Game, which was their championship game, the rating had ticked up a little bit from week seven. They came back a little bit. But the, the thing that also, just as a side note, week six went head-to-head -head with... March Madness. Mm -hmm. So by that point, they hadn't secured an audience and NASCAR's in full swing. Baseball is about to start, so you're getting a lot of that stuff. And then you've got you've got March Madness. So they were DOA. Like the minute the second week hit all those hiccups, they were DOA. Like Did they, everybody know that? My dad walked out of the first game at halftime mm -hmm. and said to Ken, We're dead. Wow. Most people did. Just like, by the quality of the game? Yeah. Wow. And, and, and they were all, I mean, they were testing so many new pieces of technology. They had, they had steady cams on the field during the game. Like, people were running around cameramen. Like, it was, or cameramen mm. running around players. There's a funny story. You, actually, I'm interested in you to weigh in on this. There's a very famous cameraman from the WWE named Bubba. Yeah, Bubba, yeah. He doesn't yeah. work there anymore, but he's a great guy. He's there forever, yeah. Yeah. So mustache, when they, guy. Yeah. So yeah. when they came up with the idea of putting steady cams on the field, they went to steady cam ops from the NFL or wherever that had worked with NBC before, done the Olympics and stuff, and said, Would you do this? And they said, Yeah, but you're gonna pay me like twice what I normally get paid because they like, could get hit. I could get killed. Right. And uh Vince said, No, we're not we don't pay people <laughs> more. Like you're like he said, I got a guy named Bubba who does this stuff on Raw all the time. He'll do it. So he tells the director, he says, here's his number. Call Bubba. Bubba will do it. So Gonzalez, the director, calls Bubba and is like, hey, so we're going to blah, blah, blah. And Bubba goes, let me call you back. And calls Vince and goes, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not running around on a football. Are you out of your mind? So they end up hiring the Steadicam guys and paying them like double their rate. Putting him in a suit of armor. The best part about that story, though, is at the end of the season, Vince sort of went to the cameraman and were like, I don't like divas who ask for a ton of money and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. But at the end of the season, he went to them and was like, you were the best thing in the whole of league, the whole and league, I'm yeah, really yeah. impressed with your commitment and all this other stuff. And uh, it takes a really big man to... Yeah, once again, it goes back to what we said about Vince being a pretty straightforward guy. 100%. Now, how was it for you to sit down and interview Vince about this, this whole thing? The two 
most difficult things I think I may have ever done in my career. A career that includes going into the Congo during the Civil War to arrest a terrorist. Wow. Uh, interviewing my father and Vince. About this. Scared the shit out of Not even just about this, just in general scared <laughs> me because, you know, I interviewed Vince for like two hours. I interviewed my dad for six. Wow. And when I originally went to him with the idea, they were like, uh, let me think about it. And we had a bunch of phone calls about it, et cetera. And they actually called, I don't remember if it was my dad or Vince, it might have been Vince, called ESPN and was like, the only reason we're doing this is because it's Charlie. Like, we raised him, we trust him, we know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But I said to him, I was like, listen, if you think that I'm doing like a puff piece, I can't do that because it'll be, it'll first of all, everyone will see through that. And second of all, I don't want to make that movie and you don't want me to make that movie. And Vince, to our point about being detail-oriented, my father and Vince, like, not big on delegation. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Calling camera shots. So I didn't give them editorial. I didn't let them see an early cut. Like, they were going to see the final film when it was done, and they were going to sit in an interview, and I was going to ask them tough questions. And I got really, really, really sick the night before the – my father's – so I interviewed my dad on a Thursday, Vince on a Friday – and then I sit them down for a dinner together at the end of the film where they where they talk wow. about That's the XFL cool. really for the first time in a long time. I got really sick Wednesday night before my dad's interview. So sick that I had to go to the emergency room and I had to have an emer- I had to have emergency surgery on my um Wow. My uh tonsils. tonsils wow. Yeah. Not removal, but they had to yeah, yeah. overshare, cut them open. <laughs> um so I was like but I was I was not gonna cancel. Yeah, we yeah, built yeah. this huge yeah. set, like all this other stuff. So I what, and it was all anxiety. It was like just I was. It was really nerve wracking. And they went. They were amazing. It was incredible. Mm. That was nothing compared to six months later. I had to go to Stanford and sit in the WWE headquarters in a conference room with my dad, Vince, Stephanie, and Triple H, Kevin, Kevin Dunn, Kevin Dunn, who's the EP of uh, everything. Everything. <laughs> He's Vince's um, number two in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Michelle Wilson, uh, CMO, uh, Brian Flynn, her number two, and that's it in the main conference room at WWE and show them it was the final cut but it was no graphics you know still had a lot of the the, the no effects were in it right, and right. it was low res and I watch and, and the thing is here's the thing I tell everyone that as a filmmaker the only thing you're looking for is when do people laugh mm-hmm. if they laugh at the times they're supposed to laugh mm-hmm. and you you've got them right. right and there's a joke like 30 seconds in that really sets the tone for the whole film and the next three sentences you couldn't hear because Vince and my father were laughing so hard. <laughs> so then the film ends and it's silent. And the person I was actually the most nervous about was Kevin Dunn because I figured Vin- – I just assumed Vince and my father would have notes. Like I just, just – I, I went into the room knowing it was going to be like, well, this didn't really happen or do this or whatever. But Kevin was the one that made me nervous because Kevin knows Vince probably better than anybody in terms of from a creative perspective. And also he's the most protective. He's the guy, you know. And – it was silent for about like two minutes. And then Kevin said, I really liked it. Hmm. And I was like, wow. And he gave a pretty detailed assessment of why he liked it. And there was one thing he didn't like. He said, I would change this. And Vince pipes up and goes, I wouldn't change a frame. Hmm. And he goes, I like that you did this. And Steph goes, I don't know. I agree with Kevin. Like, I don't like that the way they did this. And in my head, I'm kind of taking the note because I think they're right. And Vince is like, no, 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 no. That's just because you're subjective. You're seeing it as protectors mm. of me. Mm-hmm. But it's the way the film should be. And my dad gave really nice notes. And then afterwards, the next day, uh, Vince called me. And uh, he just – Kevin had written me this long email, and, and Vince called me. And 
I literally like I called my mom afterwards because my mom the first film I'd ever done was this film in Africa that my mom had helped me do and I called her and I, and I was like on the verge of tears it was wow yeah it was a big moment because you were talking about O'Shea and, and stuff like when you're in a situation the story I tell a lot of people is the day I went to college I had started two companies I'd sold one I was sort of had my thing going and my dad was dropping me off at college and my dad said um I'm worried that because I have made money and successful that I've robbed you of the drive that I had. And if he'd literally reached in my chest and pulled my heart out, it would have hurt less, wow. you know? And I don't think he'd said it to be mean. I just think he was genuinely having a moment of vulnerability where he said, I'm worried that I, I didn't yeah. create, you know. And three and a half years later, I'd gone to Africa and I'd done this documentary with my little brother and I had really struggled with it. And my mom flew out to college and she lived in a hotel right near my apartment. And every day I would finish class about 3.30 and we'd edit from three o'clock in the afternoon to three in the morning to get the first cut. I'd never edited anything before. It was my first film. Right. So we fly back, I fly back for the holidays and I want to show my dad what the film is because I, they, they hadn't seen anything. I'd raised $20,000 my little brother and I had gone over and done this thing and, and no one really seen anything other than my mom. I screened it for my dad, and about 16 or 17 minutes into the film, my dad said, can you stop it? And I was like, mm-hmm. Like, I died. I was just like, oh, God. Like, And my dad said, uh, if you don't want to go back to college, you don't have to. Wow. And that moment, and then this moment with my dad and Vince liking the film, that, that was like, it's like, you know, there's certain gifts, certain things that come along that you're like, that's what, you know. Yeah, that's what it's about, yeah. Yeah. A couple last questions. Do you think, you, you, something that you said earlier that, had they stayed the course, do you think the XFL could have turned around and, and been a, a viable league? Look, I think the problem with what's happened in our society in the last 15 years in terms of business is that we just expect everything has to be overnight success. Mm-hmm. And it's like I used to have this friend who um, would always be like, Van Halen, you know, six weeks in, they were like the biggest thing in the world. I'm like, no, they were like five years of them being right. in a van bleeding exactly, fingers sure. in shitty bars. Sure. It like, took Metallica three albums to get any type of real steam from the mainstream. Exactly. And I think that people forget that. Mm-hmm. Like, Steve Jobs had to get fired twice right. and screw up multiple times and all this other stuff to get to, you know, like the things we revere were failures. Yes. And so I'm a big believer that the stay with it, stick with it. Now, at the same time, um, I think knowing when something's not working and you've got to change course, which, so during the XFL, Vince bought WCW right in the middle of the season and redoubled his efforts and built, you know, what, what became, you know, he bought WCW and ECW within weeks of each yeah. other and, and ended all competition. Yeah. And my dad uh, was in the process of prepping Salt Lake City, which was the Salt the Lake Olympics. City Olympics, which ended up being um, the most successful Winter Olympics of all time. Uh, until I think Vancouver, but mm-hmm. I think that they were like in the grand scheme of things for the amount of work we'd have to put in to sort of fix this relative gotcha. to what our core businesses are. We shouldn't do it. So I get that assessment. That being said, I interviewed Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys, for this film, and he's a big fan. I interviewed him the night, uh, the morning after WrestleMania. WrestleMania yeah. And I sat with him during WrestleMania. I sat in his box next to him and his daughter Charlotte, who is. Um, She's Stephanie McMahon. Mm-hmm. The two most badass women on earth are <laughs> Stephanie McMahon and Charlotte, Charlotte Jones. Jones. Charlotte Jones. I sat with them, and Jerry, who I've sat with 
for football games, and he's pretty stoic, is on his feet cheering when The Rock came out. Like, <laughs> cheering. And he never seen a WWF fan. Anyway, so he really loves Vince and my dad. And he was saying in his interview, he was like, there's room for this now. Like, wow. we need a prep league. Mm. We, you know, it's the only professional sport that doesn't have a D league or right. a triple sure, A or sure, whatever. Sure, sure. And he's like, the stadiums. And Vince, I think, has that concept as well. Like, so I think there's a, I think knowing what they know now and doing it some way, the challenge is, and I have got a big partnership with the NFL as part of my core business, it's a challenging organization to work with because they are the 800 pound gorilla. Well, sure. Like- and, and I get it. Like, why would you take risks too much? That being said, you need people like my dad and Vince to come along and do something like the XFL to then inspire the changes that, you know, they, they yeah. cherry pick the best ideas and just put them in the league. You're right. And, yeah. You know, you're right. It's an, it's an amazing story. You know, I'm really excited to see the whole thing and see what you've done. And, and uh, but last question, going back to, to when you were a kid, do you have a favorite Saturday night main event story? From when you were backstage, oh. when if Hogan was babysitting you or whatever it may be, I will tell and you. And this is a whole other podcast, by the way. I've already decided part two will be the story of Sinai's main event with Charlie. Oh so. God, I would love to do yeah, that. Well, with yeah, you. we oh should definitely God. do that. Um, well, no, let me <laughs> let me tell you a different story because uh, okay. <laughs> there's a there are a couple of good uh, uh, Saturday Night Main Event stories which we should talk about. We'll save them. My favorite story from WWF in the '80s is. <laughs> Bob Costas, who at the time was in St. Louis, they he and I think Dan Deardorff were there together, and they decided they were going to cover Saturday Night Main Event or whatever the event was. Yeah. It was it may have been a paper live show or whatever. Yeah, they were going to cover it like a real sporting event. So they went in tuxedos and they did the whole thing. And they um, Gene Gene uh, Okerlund, Gene Okerlund, Mean Gene, yeah. Mean Gene. So they did stuff with him and everything. They did the whole thing, and afterwards. They do an interview with Vince, and Vince sort of finishes, and they're backstage, and they wrap up, and it's like an hour and a half after the show, and Hulk and Andre, uh, the giant, are like, we're hungry. We need to get food. And it's like 1.30 in the morning in St. Louis. So they get in Vin- – Vince has gone back to his hotel. They take Vince's limo, and they start driving around trying to find a place to eat. So now it's like 1.30, now it's 2, and they find a White Castle that's open. Bob Costas is in a tuxedo. I think it's Dan Deardorff. Dan is in a tuxedo. <laughs> Hulk is still in his yellow <laughs> underwear and and uh, tank top, and Andre is in his like one shoulder beast. And they walk into a White Castle at two o'clock in the morning. And there's like the way uh, uh, Costas describes it is there's one drunk sort of vagrant sitting in the corner who like looks up, <laughs> sees this, and just head face back down into his hamburger and then another person who like scrambles out the side door and they walk up and Andre orders something like 64 hamburgers or whatever you know, the, the little, little things yeah, yeah. the little things and Hulk orders like 30 and and Dan and Bob order like fries and a coke <laughs> and they sit in this thing and Andre like almost gets stuck in the, in the in booth the food, yeah. like all the, and I it's so I I look back like uh, at my <laughs> at aspects of my childhood, and that is such an accurate representation mm. of what yeah. I remember. Like I re- I remember stories like that. Um, I'll give you uh, I'll show you a photo. It's on my Instagram account of me at I'm probably seven 
with Hulk, and Hulk is standing behind me doing his arm, you know, double flexing. pose, double bicep. Yeah, exactly. And I'm doing the same thing in front of him, but I've got like, you know, Fisher Price glasses because I was blind <laughs> as a bat, and I'm wearing like my shirt tucked in. It was, my childhood was very bizarre. Yeah. Oh man, this has been great, Charlie. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. man. This is so awesome. If this turns out to be a grand scale failure, mm-hmm. what impact will that have on you? Well, you know, I get knocked on my keister, I dust myself off, and I get back up. What do you mean what impact is going to have on me? I'm going to do the very best I can every single day. I'm a fighter, okay? I enjoy fighting, by the way. All right, set your DVRs February 2nd, 9 p.m. Eastern. That's when this is the XFL, the amazing 30 for 30 special directed by today's uh, amazing guest, Charlie Ebersole. It premieres on ESPN. You're not going to want to miss it. You heard a whole story about the XFL. Uh, what a tale. Charlie and I barely uh, scratched the surface. There's so much more to this whole story, to this whole uh, epic saga. So check out the documentary he made about his father and Vince McMahon's attempt to give the NFL a run for their money. Thanks to Charlie for giving us such a great inside look at what it took to make this documentary, what it was like uh, growing up with his dad, Dick Ebersole. And we will get together in the future and do a Saturday Night Main Event uh, special. As you can tell, we're both super into that. And Charlie was there in the front row. So thanks to Charlie and thanks to all of you for supporting Talk is Jericho and the tremendous TIJ sponsors. I couldn't do this with uh, without you or them. And that includes Amazon, the OG Talk is Jericho sponsor. Easiest way to help out this show, use my Amazon links whenever you do any online shopping. You find the Amazon links at podcast1.com. Um, click on that killer deals button at the top right corner of the page then hit the talk is jericho button i got the amazon links for usa uk canada a every time you use tij to amazon links amazon kicks back a small percentage to this show to help us cover production costs there's no hidden fees or extra charges you buy what you want and uh, you help us out at the same time once again podcast1.com click on the killer deals button in the top right corner of the page then hit the talk is jericho button you'll find all the rest of my great sponsors there as well including ddpyoga.com slash jericho 25% off all DDPY merch and when you buy a max pack or a combo pack you get a second one for 50% off of the price that's already 25% off. I still can't believe that boggles me mind, eh? Of course, there's also Little Caesars. Take advantage of their five items for $5 each. That is a great offer to find a location near you. Go to littlecaesars.com and there's CISO. <laughs> so funny. Sign up at CISO.com, S-E-E-S-O.com. Use the promo code PODCAST1 to get two months for free, all right? And don't forget, on top of that, March 15th, 2017, it's the biggest podcast ever. When Mick Foley joins Talk is Jericho, we were just talking yesterday how this time has gone by. We announced that one year prior, we got 47 days left for uh, for the Micker to make his TIJ debut. And speaking of big podcasts, Beyond the Darkness on the Jericho Network is now five days a week. Yes, you get your scare on every weekday on, uh, on TJN with brand new episodes of the creepiest, scariest, freakiest podcast on the planet. Go hit subscribe at iTunes if you haven't already and leave Beyond the Darkness a five-star rating and review. As a matter of fact, hit the subscribe button on all the uh, great Jericho Network shows while you're there. Hilarious Team Tiger, awesome show. Pulp culture humor at its finest with Nick Mundy, Michael Truly, and Clint Gage. They're running a, a, a contest right now to name their fans. So go to at TT Awesome on the Twitter if you want to uh, give them uh, a fan name for yourself. New episodes every Sunday. Then, of course, Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus. That drops every Tuesday. Bulldog Bob Brown raps on the uh, on the new episode. And Brian Alvarez from Wrestling Observer Live joins Lance and Cyrus to talk about the death of WCW. Another tremendous episode. And we got the flagship show Keeping It 100 with Conan every Thursday. Conan, Disco Inferno, KG bringing the opinions, the funny, the feuds, and the huge, huge ratings. It's a runaway hit 
perfect. Congratulations to Conan, and congratulations to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Keep listening right now for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. And coming up on Friday, the return of the Heartbreak Kid. Shawn Michaels is going to be here. That's right, a huge, huge conversation with my favorite rival, my biggest rival. Shawn Michaels is going to be here, so check that out on Friday. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.